Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Uh, everything okay over there? I think so. Okay. Uh, my my co-host, who I've not introduced yet, but he just jumped when I uh, when I started to introduce the show. Uh, I guess I started a higher volume than uh, we than I've been using the last few minutes. Um, but anyway, so uh, so yes, thank you everybody for for listening. Um, sorry. I guess kind of maybe, uh, that, uh, last week was not an official episode. Instead, it was me answering listener questions, uh, that they were entitled to ask because of my Kickstarter campaign. And what was that Kickstarter campaign all about? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I was putting a book together called worth watching was, which was a, a compilation of various reviews and essays that I've written over the years. And, uh, the campaign was complete. And so now, I have a number of copies of the book that uh, are available for sale, and I've got a lot more on the way. So if you uh, pledged at the $20 or above level on the Kickstarter, you've got one coming to you already, so don't worry about buying another one. Unless, hey, you want to buy a bunch and give them to your friends, that's fine too. Um, but for the rest of you, if you're interested, uh, just go to morethanonelesson.com, and on the side of the page, there'll be uh, there'll be a button that simply says Tyler's book. Uh, I was thinking of putting worth watching, but I thought people might not know what that means. But Tyler's book is pretty unmistakable. Uh, and so, if you live in the United States or Canada, I'm working on international. We'll see how that goes from a shipping standpoint. Uh, it'll it's fifteen dollars, uh, fifteen dollars even, and so that will get you a copy of the book and. Uh, I guess in the in the comments you could ask me to sign it. Here's why I say that. Uh, I say that facetiously. The idea of of me signing books. When I was at the International Christian Film Festival and I was selling books and I sold a good number of them, uh, people asked me to sign it, and I didn't. Some of them because I, some of the people because I, I kind of had a nice rapport with them. I said, "Why do you want me to sign this? My name means nothing." And they said, "Yeah, but." This is your book, and you're here. You need to embrace your fame, Tyler. Ah, fame seems like a strong word. Um, but anyway, so, uh, and then uh, yesterday I gave a book to one of my classmates who who contributed to the Kickstarter, and uh, he gave me a pen and said, like, can you sign it? I said, "This that's ridiculous. I know you. Can't that, isn't that enough? Isn't that better than me signing a book? Uh, and he said, I don't know. It just seems pretty cool. And I was like, all right, I guess he that's... might not know you after this quarter. Now he's going to be around a while. I'm going to, okay. you know, I'll see him around. And so, uh, it, I guess it's just an instinct that people have that, that does not occur to me on, on either side of it. It is never, I've never asked for an autograph. Um, that's not true. I did receive an, oh, I received an autograph picture, but only in response to a fan letter, but I did not ask for an autograph picture. 
Um, it was Robert Duvall, by the way. Wow. So I have that in a box somewhere. Very nice. But uh, anyway, so yeah, at age 17, I sent a fan letter to Robert Duvall because his, you know, his, at the time I was acting and, mm. uh, and his acting style, like just kind of, uh, astonished me and, sure. and shaped, uh, some of the choices that I was making. So anyway, um, so yeah, uh, you can get worth watching and in the comments you can ask me to sign it and I will, and chances are I'll sign it. Like, I don't know why you want this Tyler Smith. Um, is it really you signing it or is it the intern? Right. Yes. It's the intern. <laughs> it's, uh, Reed is my intern now, and I just have him signing books, and oh, he's exhausted. He's been practicing your signature for months. You know what? Uh, I don't think anybody could ever forge my signature because it's a little bit different every time. It is very inconsistent. Then how do we know it's yours? Uh, I guess you don't. Hmm. Mystery. The plot thickens. Uh, so anyway, uh, but yeah, thank you to everybody who, who did support, uh, the Kickstarter. I do appreciate it. And, uh, I will say that if you, re if you open the book, the, one of the very first things you'll read is the table of contents. But after that mm -hmm. is the forward. And I'll tell you who wrote the forward. My co-host who's here with me now, Robert Hornack. Robert. Oh, wow. I did do that, didn't I? Yes, you did. I, uh, thanks for that, by the I way. I was happy to do it. Uh, it was easy because I know you, and also because I basically just took an old preface I found and replaced all the Roger Eberts with Tyler Smith. Oh boy, I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah, it was confusing when you mentioned like my me being on ABC with right. Gene Siskel. It seems right. odd that you wouldn't change his name. Right. Um, and there's that one point where it actually says Roger Ebert in the preface. And that, yeah, that was when Ebert mentioned you. That's right, yeah. Robert is lying, by the way. Uh, Roger Ebert uh, has never mentioned me, though we did meet once, and it was awesome. Ah, um, I don't know the story. Oh, really? I didn't know you met. It was, it was very brief. It was on the streets of Chicago, hmm. and uh, he was uh, crossing the street, and so I, I, I was... You helped him across the street. He wasn't that old yet. Um, <laughs> I was starstruck, and so I just said, uh, excuse me, are you Roger Ebert? Because I'm a young, I'm like 19. Yeah. And he goes, yes. And I said, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. You're a wonderful critic. I've been watching you for years. And he said, thank you. And uh, and I said that I'd been going to Columbia, uh, Columbia College, Chicago. And he said that he uh, he actually taught a class there a, a, a few years before. Yeah. And I thought like, oh, that would have been awesome. Sure. Um, Did you actually give him the thumbs up? No, of course not. Thank you so much. Because I know that he does. He thanks you. I know he trademarked it, but I know he never really liked it that much. Sure. So, um, I don't think they either he or Gene intended it to be like a lifelong sort of thing. No. That I mean, it was like a, sort of an extra way to make money doing what they already did. Well, and it was just yeah. I mean, it's it was so simplistic, mm -hmm. and they didn't really and they didn't like it. They didn't really like the star system that much either. They re would rather just write what they wrote and let yeah. people draw their own conclusions. Sure. But you know. Probably those first episodes are together and they're talking about whatever movie it is. They're, and they're both, both of their, their minds are probably thinking, what would Pauline Kael do? Not this. True. Yes. Pauline Kael would be very catty and uh, think she was superior to everybody. Sorry. I'm not a fan of Pauline Kael. I like Pauline. Um, she's uh, She was a very good writer. I just, I don't think she had great opinions. I thought she had some great ones and some that I disagree with, but they're still great opinions. What makes some great opinions is because she, she explained herself. And re reading her stuff is a lot like reading uh, about the time that she was writing. As sure. Well. I mean, it's very culturally rooted. Um, and I, I just feels like learning more than just about film whenever you're reading a lot of her stuff. Not every, not all of it, obviously, but quite a bit of it. 
it's not merely that I disagreed with some of her opinions and, and, you know, somebody can explain their opinions and, and I still see the like, yeah, you're not connecting the dots for me. This seems like a thing that you can't justify. And that's fine. We all have opinions, Mm -hmm. especially in regards to art. We all have opinions and reactions that we can't really justify or explain. Um, but it was usually, and it was also the tone in which she often explained those opinions. Sure. She was, you know, like I said, she was very catty. She was a know-it-all. And people could say that every critic is a know-it-all. Um, but it just bothered me. And as a staunch supporter of uh, Orson Welles, um, her uh, her Raising Cain essay is astonishingly unfair and terribly researched. Hmm. Um, but, you know, when you're as, as much an enemy of the auteur theory as, uh, as she, she was, was then... Mm-hmm you're going to write an essay. Then you, you say like, okay, well, what's the best movie ever? Well, people seem to say Citizen Kane is. So how can I take that credit away from Orson Welles and give it to Herman Mankiewicz, which is what she tried to do. Right. And, uh, and in doing so, like, it's just a lot of hearsay and, but she didn't really interview a lot of people. I read that review. And then I read Peter Bogdanovich's response in which he did interview all the people that she references, but didn't talk to. Mm. Um, so that was maybe my first introduction to her. But since then, we had to read her for a film criticism well, That's class. a shame that it was such a sort of a bombastic negative for you, because it's yeah. hard to overcome, especially when it's your favorite movie at the time. Sure. Um, but that's the thing is I've read, I've read other stuff by her, and she is undoubtedly uh, a great wordsmith. Like, she's, mm-hmm. she, she does play a very important role. And I read a lot of uh, back and forth between her and Andrew Serres sure. about the auteur theory and such. And uh, I think she was a better writer than he was, but which is weird because I find myself agreeing more with him than with right. her. So did you ever read Manny Farber? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Because uh, he, I was going to ask you if you'd read him extensively. Do you like him? Oh, I, I have not read enough to to know officially. Because I think that he kind of falls in the same camp of a person who is very aggressively uh, giving his opinion. Yeah. Very great wordsmith as well. His personality is in every single thing that he he wrote. You know the kind of person he probably was walking around town talking to people. Um, so if you had said that you like him, but not her, and they essentially share the same kind of, they're in the same column of styles of writers, not obviously one-to-one, but yeah. that would say something because it's like, you can't accept it from Pauline Kale, but you can from Annie Farber. They're both kind of, kind of crabby. Yeah. I, I tend not to respond to, I mean, of course we all respond to cattiness on a certain level, but I tend not to respond to it and I try not to. I try not to emulate it uh, mm-hmm. on this show or my other show. It's hard not to sometimes, especially when you feel like a film is somehow insulting you personally. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I prefer uh, a more nuanced and charitable tone, even even while saying negative things. Well, I think film. that's. I, I was trying to hit that in the preface. If we can bring it back to that, sure. And by my comparing you to Roger Ebert, that's kind of what I was trying trying to communicate. Is that I think you both. Um, are egalitarian to a point, um, you know, wanting to be fair, yeah. even to something that you don't necessarily like, um, and still coming, it's still very obvious or clear from your word, your own word smithing, Tyler Smith, indeed, um, that you do or don't like something, but it's it feels very g- generously opinionated, as opposed to a Manny Farber or a Pauline Kael. You know, and at the same time. You mentioned that the the era in which they wrote, and maybe at the time, I would say certainly at the time. In fact, this is sort of a there's a paper I'm writing right now for uh, one of my classes, 
is the the changing role of film criticism mm -hmm. and the I'd say diminishing influence. Um, and at the time, film critics did were they did have more they had more of a following, I'd say, and they were they had more personality. Like people just kind of knew who they were and what and what they were like. Like people knew who Pauline Kael was. Mm -hmm. not she was just, kind of a superstar. She yeah, was not first, just like, movie fans. She was like probably the first like film reviewer that you knew the name of. Yeah. Just in conversation. But it was it was the time. It was, yeah. Just like you said, it's the time, but it's it's not just it's easy to say it was the times that they were writing in, like Manny Farber or especially Pauline Kael, but it was the fact that that time contained so many great movies. Yeah. And not that we don't have great movies now, but I think the, the culture of movies isn't what it was because popular film isn't what it was then. Popular film was what, you know, we now call the 70s new wave, American new wave. Now, I mean, what is popular film? It's, it's well, it's, you know, it, uh, superhero films. Yeah. It's movies that films. have a publicity budget that is equal to their production. Budget. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, a whole class of uh, critics are having to respond to that, and yeah. that doesn't necessarily breed automatically a Pauline Kale. It 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 breeds something else, and it can be curmudgeonly. Who's the guy that always gets kicked around because he's so such a um, Armand White? Yes. So there's that guy, and you you never know. In like thirty years, he might be the guy that people are talking about because he did buck the trend of a lot of other critics. He is a he is a fascinating wordsmith, and I think that he. I think that he is true to himself. Mm -hmm. I think he does enjoy having an opinion that runs counter. Mm -hmm. So I think he heightens that, and I think he uh, and is and he does not keep his opinions just to the page. Uh, if you hear stories about uh, various critics awards that he uh, interrupts because something has won that he doesn't like, uh, then I think okay, well that is actually becoming a, a problem. That is when the person becomes a nuisance and when they just are getting into, I don't like to use this word, but I will, uh, becoming a little trollish at that point. Yeah. Um, and I read his reviews and I mean, it's a fascinating tapestry of words and I don't, I don't always exactly know what he's saying. Um, which could mean that he's brilliant or it could mean that he's trying to seem brilliant. Right. Um, either way. Uh, but yeah, there's something to be said for the person that just kind of stands out there on their own. Um, there's a, a critic that writes for real spirituality named Colin Stacy. And I think he's a, a tremendous critic, I think. And he, he often, he often dislikes stuff that, that I like. Um, and he writes in such a way that I feel like, well, I guess I'm wrong because I can't write this way. And surely if yeah. some, anyone that can write this way has to be right about exactly. art. I think um, that's how Pauline Kael got as far as she did. Probably. Because yeah. she is, she does <laughs> really push her opinion in her language. Yeah. To where you feel kind of dumb yeah. if you if you know because you don't know because she does pull in culture and she pulls in like the the nuances of culture what's going on and why this is good during yeah. this time or why this is affecting audiences the way it is and so you feel like wow she's really and she's there she was there yeah um you feel like she must be right yeah. and i my opinion who am i uh i ha have you read any uh, james agee I, I was almost i almost mentioned him earlier when we were talking about manny farber because um, but I didn't because it, I, I didn't want to take it that far because actually he's one of my favorite filmmakers. But he he was criticized for liking his wordsmithing too much and and almost like that dictating 
how he felt about a film. I don't think that was ever true. I mean, I read a, I've read a lot of his stuff, yeah, but the criticism is not that the vibe I get that he that he likes writing too much. He likes writing more than the film. Uh, that is possible, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do the way I the way I always read it is that he certain films energized him so much that right. he just had all this stuff. And it's Monsieur Verdot was his movie. Boy, it sure was. He was like, he wrote, he wrote reviews or more like as long essays, like in your book. Yeah. Uh, three times for yeah. that one movie. Cause he was trying to champion it so much like Chaplin is back. Cha- Chaplin has made his, his grand masterpiece yeah. of all time. Um, and it's a good movie. Sure. I don't love it. Yeah. But it's good. It's interesting. It's yeah. a terrible word to give a movie because it's like flat, but yeah. no, it's, it's a very well-made movie and it has, it's saying a lot of things and it's coming out of an anger that Chaplin must've been feeling at the time that he made it. Oh, undoubtedly. That, that and King of New York. Um, uh, which I still haven't seen actually. I haven't seen fun. that or Limelight. It's fun. Uh, I've seen Limelight, but it's been so long. I can't remember much about it, but King of New York is uh, a king of or king in, a king in New York. A king in New York. Yeah. Is is fun. It's a lot of fun because he's he's an old guy, yeah. But he's still doing some of the shtick that he was obviously just kind of comes out naturally, and hmm. um, he's just a, a not to get too far off on Chaplin, but he's just fun to watch that guy. Um, and there's some there's some <clears throat> some really good stuff in Monsieur Verdoux. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like the boat, the rowboat, yeah, where he's trying to murder his wife, and just <laughs> a lot of wacky hijinks happen. Sure, um, he still but, got it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but AG championed him. And AG yeah. was, I think, amongst that era, it's probably my favorite writer, my favorite critic, because of the way he wrote. I mean, criticize yeah. it or not, but I just, he really did nail down a lot of uh, great imagery inside of his love or to, to help to manifest his love for certain things in certain movies. Well, he wrote a long essay about silent comedy mm-hmm. um, at a time when silent comedy was not super accessible. Certainly, I mean, people could see Chaplin a little bit here and there, um, but Keaton had almost completely gone away. As far as like, you know, there was no home video at the time. This stuff wasn't being shown on TV and the occasional art house theater, maybe, but not really. And then there wasn't a lot of Lloyd either. And mm-hmm. so he wrote this uh, he wrote this long essay talking about how great silent comedy was. And it can be very difficult to talk about something that is purely visual um, and explain a funny gag right? in a way where the humor is conveyed at all. Um, but he does. And it's a really good essay, essay. And, um, and having, and having seen a lot of those films, which admittedly most of his readers at the time had not, but being lucky enough as we are now to have access to those films. And when you see them and then you see his summary of them, you realize, wow, he was really good at this. He nailed it. Um, yeah, he's a, he was a marvelous writer, but we do need to move on. This all came about because of my book worth watching, which I would say is right up there with <laughs> your Pauline's kale and your James's AG, um, your Manny's Farber, your Manny's Farber, or your Stevens Farber, who I'm actually going to be uh, interning for uh, this summer. Hmm. Um, he's a, a film critic who taught my film criticism class. Hmm. Uh, and you can actually hear him over at Battleship Pretension back from January, I think, All talking right. about the Oscar nominees. But anyway, so uh, so yeah, we, uh, we talked about that for a while, but hopefully people uh, enjoyed that. And I will say that my talk at the International Christian Film Festival was about the importance of film criticism and the need in the Christian film industry for people that are not filmmakers and 
not people that are content to just write the occasional user review, but people that want to think critically mm-hmm. about these films. And, and there are, they do exist. They are out there, but there aren't many of them. Uh, and so, uh, so critics have been on my mind. And again, I am writing a paper about, uh, the changing role of critics. So the concept of criticism is right there at the forefront of my brain. So anyway, uh, okay. We do need to move on, uh, to talk about this, this week's film. Uh, and this is going to continue. This is going to keep a nice tradition going. Um, uh, about a month or two ago, I had sort of my, uh, accidental series about war in which mm. we talked about, uh, rogue one, and Kong Skull Island yes. and Hacksaw Ridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as full-on episodes, uh, you know, officially on-format episodes, this week will be um, uh, the second in a series of movies nobody cares about. A <laughs> uh, couple weeks ago, we talked about The Lost City of Z, which nobody cares about. Never seen it. Uh, it's very good. It just came out. Um and it might still, it's still at probably a couple of theaters and it's worth seeing. Okay. Um, though Josh did not think so. Hmm. Uh, and then, um, why didn't I, why wouldn't I have said worth watching? Come on. I got to stay on brand here. Is it your, your new phrase? Like thumbs up? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I don't like it. I don't like worth watching. It was just sort of a generic title, honestly. Uh, it works though. It's great. But it works. It's worth reading. And it definitely, uh, I've heard that. I don't remember <laughs> where, um, so, uh, so yeah, this week we are talking about John Crowley's Brooklyn mm. that came out in 2015. It's a film that, not that nobody saw it, people did see it, but I don't think two years later people were are clamoring to know what we think about it. No. But it was my favorite movie of 2015. That I'd forgotten. Um, which surprised me. I, it snuck up on me, this film. I When I had heard about it, I just thought like, all right, it's just going to be standard Oscar bait type of stuff. And then when I saw it, within about 20 minutes, I thought, this is really genuinely, sincerely great. And by the end of it, I was just in love with, with this film. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so tune in next week. We will be doing another uh, episode about a movie you don't care about and haven't seen. So stay tuned. Do you know what it is? I do. It, you don't uh, want to tease? Yeah, I'll go ahead and Worth say teasing? it's, uh, it's uh, the end of the tour. Oh, wow. It's streaming. And Is I, it? It's on my queue, yeah. Streaming where? Oh, I want to say Amazon Prime, uh-huh. but I can't remember. Unless it's Netflix, nobody cares. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, that's what I'll be talking about next week with uh, with Josh. Okay. So, okay. This week, though, we're talking about Brooklyn. Um, Great movie. Okay, so you enjoy it as well. I did. Uh, would you like me to tell you how or why? Sure. Uh, just in general, uh, I think that's... I, I saw it, I, I did not see it in the theater. I saw it on home video um, a little bit later. And it was only after I'd read a couple of things from people saying that it was great. And of course it was it was nominated for Best Picture along yeah. with what, like 20 other movies? Right, uh, yes. But it was nominated for, and for Best, what? Best Actress? Best for, Actress and Adapted Screenplay. Adapt, adapted Screenplay. So I heard all these things, and I think it was a couple of the blogs that I go to, movie blogs, had one guy just was championing it, like just saying mm-hmm. it's the most beautiful film he'd seen in years. And I was like, well, I should give it a shot. So I rented it, or I Netflixed it or whatever, and watched it. And I, uh, Aubrey and I, my wife, uh, watched it, and we were both enthralled by it. And it's, yeah. a, it's just a... What it does well, uh, and we'll get into this, obviously, is... 
it 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 you know it communicates how it must feel to be in a different place yeah in a very visceral way and it's i mean it's a simple way but it's very visceral and again we'll talk about that more but that's that's the feeling that you feel all the way through it is just this uncomfortable feeling of being the other yeah even when she's back home in the second half of the movie she still feels that way and we still feel that still feel that way yeah and if the movie does anything, it does a ton of stuff great, but if, I think the main thing it does well is keeps you there in that feeling because yeah. it's, you know, audience identification with her and she is feeling that way and you also feel that way. This is really well done. And, and then I, I watched it again for, for this okay. and felt the same way. It's just a, a great movie. Yeah, it's it's shockingly rewatchable um, because Crowley does such a great job of creating the time and creating the, the place and crafting characters that you care about uh, and can relate to that it's just it sounds weird to talk about a you know I'm not I'm not talking about Avatar here but I want to I want to step into the world of Brooklyn mm-hmm. you know um, and so uh, and what's interesting so you mentioned this idea of of being uh, you know a stranger in a strange land being the other um, what what I find really interesting is that I feel like this is something people can relate to even if they have never actually gone to another country or even another state because of where she is in her life uh, as far as age um, because everybody does everybody can relate to moving out mm-hmm. and then having to find an apartment and then maybe while you, maybe you meet an odd neighbor, but then you also have to figure out, okay, what kind of job am I going to get? What, uh, what kind of car am I going to get? Just, and just as you grow older and as you become an adult, that in itself otherizes you um, because you look around and everybody seems to know what they're doing. Everybody seems <laughs> to know what they're talking about. And this is all new to you. Um, and this is something that, uh, that as I've gotten older, I, I think back on my parents and, and just any parents. And I think they seem to really know what they were, what, what they were doing at all times. And then I realize now that I am, you know, 35, I, and undoubtedly an adult in the eyes of, you know, the students that I TA for, mm-hmm. um, I think like, wow, if only they knew how little I knew about what was going on in my own life. And then I just thought, I wonder if that's how it was for everybody. And I'm only now being let behind the curtain Mm -hmm. to see how it works. And so, uh, so I feel like people, the, the film does such a great job of, of showing this young woman in all kinds of transition, uh, from childhood to adulthood, from, you know, Ireland to America and back again. And it's that, and it, it is also that idea that you're talking about, which is just when you start to understand the rules and just when you start to understand how everything works, life comes along, throws a wrench in, in your plans and you have to reorganize everything again. You have to figure it out. And then you, and there you are again. And so, Hey, you, uh, you moved out, you got your own apartment, you got your own job, that's great. Oh, wait, hang on. Uh, an opportunity has arisen in a whole other uh, state. So you move there. And it's like, I don't know where everything, I don't know where anything All is. All over again. You know, I got to learn a new grocery store now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
Yeah, I feel like the film captures that. It just captures so many, just that that very intangible time in your life. I'd say early tw- late teens, early twenties, yeah. where you're you're figuring out who you are and your place in the world, and that is a very and at first you you start to feel like maybe I don't have a place in the world, uh, and that is a very scary prospect. And I feel like the film captures that beautifully, and and it's never fatalistic. That's the other thing. It's never cynical. I think it's realistic mm-hmm. uh, about the way people are and the way life is going to go sometimes. But I don't think it ever spills into cynicism. No, I, I fully agree. Some of that has to do with uh, kind of sentimental cin- cinematography, if you want to call it that. Sure. It just feels. Uh, it feels almost like a lot of movies that are set in in prior times. It's like it, it it's almost like a nostalgic lens over it. So it kind of uh, it kind of mutes that cynicism that could be there. Obviously, yeah. there are plenty of films that are also cynical about past eras, but but this movie is not one of those. It's definitely it makes it do, it does make you want to kind of step into it. Yeah, and and when you think about it, it's very strange because. For us as Americans, if I think of Ireland or London or Paris, which we'll, do, we'll be talking about, places I haven't been to, I think we likely have an idealized image of them. Of course. You know, it, with Ireland's like, oh, these rolling green hills and these little villages, you know, basically just stuff that John Ford showed us or mm-hmm. whatever. Um but then if we were to ask to describe like, oh, well, what's what's America like? It's like, ah, it's flat and there's a lot of wheat, you know, and it's boring and there's no real culture. And, yeah, there's a little bit of fun architecture every once in a while, but who cares? You know, it's because it's what we're used to. Mm-hmm. And what I think is interesting is that this film is so from the character Ailish, uh, which is a super Irish name and I like it. Um, uh, it's so from her point of view that I feel like Ireland looks the way we would describe America. Hmm. And then America looks like the way we would describe Ireland or any of these other places. It's new, it's exciting, it's vibrant. Instantly idealized. Yeah. And and so it it's this idea that what you're used to is always going to be the thing that is boring. And anywhere you go, even if you go somewhere else within your own country, but it's a place you've never been and it's a place that, you know, I've never been to New York. And so I have a very clear idea of what that is like. Uh, it might not be true, but based on movies and what people talk about, you know, that if you go to New York in the in the fall, well, it's just the best place in the world. Yeah. Um, and so whereas I know what I think about Los Angeles yeah. and and I don't think I appreciated Chicago completely until I left. And mm. that's that's a big part of it as well is yeah. looking back on places, looking forward to places and then maybe not. Not that you're not appreciating it, but not fully acknowledging where you are right now. Yeah, it's something, something, it's, it's something if you're from Ireland and you think the grass is greener in America. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, see? Well done. Thank you. So, uh, so yeah, it, it, I feel like instinctively I would have a problem with that sentimental cinematography that you're talking about, but for some reason, and I can't, maybe you can help me figure out why it doesn't bother me in this film at all. I, I'm perfectly comfortable viewing this film as beautiful and not, and I, I don't think the word sentimental or sappy or idealized I don't would come so. into my mind because those are, I think, negative terms. Uh, yeah, those are very pejorative. Um, 
but I, th- I think it's because, as we talked about, uh, the movie does strike an incredible, incredibly successful balance of that beauty, that idealized beauty, and the way she feels. Yeah. Even though it's idealized, it's still idealized to her. It's like all brand new, but she still feels so separate from it. Yeah. And that makes us not think of it nostalgically or or uh, sentimentally necessarily in the moment yeah. alongside her because that's how she's feeling. She's feeling very removed from what she has right in front of her. It's like this land of opportunity or whatever moniker you want to put on it. Um, and she's now there. Yeah. And yet it still doesn't feel that way because she still feels like, like, do I belong here? What do I do? How do I make this thing operate? Yeah. And it, the movie has a couple of very small moments where I think it really uh, hits that nail on the head. For instance, when she's at her new job at the department store mm-hmm. and the way her boss treats her um, makes her feel like a child almost. Yeah. And she's, of course, anyone could do the job she was doing. So she's like, show this and then say a nice thing to the customer to make them like you. And then maybe they'll buy something. It's very simple. But she's yeah. so from somewhere else. Yeah. And she's got this accent um, that there's no way for her to do that simply. Yeah. And the other moment is maybe even the same little area of the film. I can't recall. But she goes on her lunch break to the counter Mm-hmm. And she's eating a bowl of soup or something like that. And the waiter or the guy behind the counter uh, says, what is that, uh, Irish? And she goes, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. the Irish brogue you have or whatever he, whatever he says to her. Yeah. And then he just sort of falls back into the background. And she's left sitting there with that. And it's not communicated in a, in a, in a blunt force way, but you see her sitting there having heard that compliment that actually feels like a put down. Yeah. Because that person without understanding what they're doing has actually made her feel more separate by yeah. calling out what is different about her. Yeah. And it's just this, it's a series of these sort of alienating moments that put you in her, in her perspective. And it makes you feel like, you know, this idealized world that we're seeing through the lens, it's like beautifully shot is not really for her as long as she's made to feel this way by right. the people that are already there. Right. And that's honestly coming away from the second viewing, which was not to get political, was after the election. Hmm. And I was thinking about it in terms of how immigrants must feel now, like sure. legal or otherwise. And I'm thinking, you know, the way this movie makes you feel or think about immigrants in an almost in an idealized way itself is okay because that's that's the the philosophy of America is right. to be welcoming to that sort of person yeah. and to try as best you can to kind of make them feel better. Although we've never been good at that as a country, never yeah. been good. Whether it be Irish, Italian, Jewish, Italian, exactly. Uh, it's, really it's very telling that the movie has her fall in love with an Italian guy Yeah, because she still feels other. And she's like meeting an Italian guy and his whole family and his entire, uh, you know, all the Italians came over and felt the same way that she did. Yeah. And they were ostracized and they were like uh, r- racially segregated and made to feel terrible and, and accused of crimes and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's just interesting that the movie allows her to not fall in love with like a quote unquote American, right. you know, like a, a, you know, blonde, blue haired, blue haired, blue eyed, blonde haired, uh, you know, tall guy, football player or something like that. It's, and yet an, this it's guy another is, immigrant. And yet this guy is undoubtedly American. Like I've absolutely, he's, I guess, you know, what, what I guess you called what second generation, like mm-hmm. his parents immigrated, mm-hmm. he was born here, but because 
of his parents, like he is definitely connected to his roots, but yes. he is undoubtedly American. And so whether he's aware of it or not, I think he sees in her some like a, a fellow traveler, uh, so to speak. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, their relationship, I think, is something because, you know, I try to be really smart and sophisticated and stuff, but there's still like a nine year old boy inside me that says, I don't care about romance. <laughs> I care about mine with my wife. I don't want to see it in movies. Uh, and what I think I mean is, as I've gotten older, is that I don't care about forced romance. I don't care yeah. about artificial romance. It's often poorly written. Yeah. Shoehorned in. And it makes, a, and it makes jumps. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you see one that, if, that feels very organic, in which two people who seem to have a natural chemistry, as will happen when you see people who, who are in love or are in the process of falling in love, it's not a, it's not people butting heads. Like they just have a natural flow to how they interact. And when I'm watching, uh, Ailish and Tony, that's what I get is a really natural, uh, progression of a relationship. And he comes on so strong early on, albeit in a very suave way that my first, I was like, I don't trust this guy one bit, (laughs) but then it's just like, no, he's just somebody who's very forward. That's who he is. Some people are like that. Mm -hmm. He has no, you know, he has no agenda except that, oh, this woman is attractive and I'd like to get to know her, you know, the way people act sometimes. And, uh, but what I find interesting is that, so let me ask you this. So, well, let me, let me say this. So the story is this young Irish girl moves to New York, Brooklyn specifically, and gets a, a new job and, and is living with several other women and is getting some help from other Irish immigrants and stuff mm-hmm. boarding and she, house and in a boarding house. And then she falls in love with this, this guy and, uh, and really starts setting up a life for herself in Brooklyn. But then there's a death in her family and she goes back to Ireland and, and has to stay there for a while. Um, and once she stays there, she keeps finding herself obligated to her best friend, to her mother, to her old place of business mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And then she meets another guy there, uh, albeit people seem to want them to meet. Um, and so she, she's there just long enough to feel like, okay, hang on. Do I stay here or do I go back to Brooklyn? Meanwhile, she has an obligation because right before she went back to Ireland, yeah. Tony says, hey, we should get married first. So they secretly, without the yeah. families knowing, go to a justice of the peace or something and they actually you know, say the words. So she's got that obligation back in America. Meanwhile, she's right. got this deepening, uh, it's, it's sort of like mixed obligation and also kind of more growing desire to stay in Ireland after she goes back. Yeah. It's a real conflict. And, and the guy that she uh, is... So she develops a relationship with Donald Gleason, who is also a nice guy and, and, and a guy who is very much of his town. Like he's not going anywhere. He's going to set up his, his bar and that's right. That's what he was going to do. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to set up a bar and that's what his life is going to be. But he's not, you know, he's not this lout who, who doesn't care about the outside world. He's just, this is who I am and I'm perfectly comfortable staying where I am and doing what I'm doing. And 
you know, and she was, she seemed to be enjoying getting out of this, this world, but she also does care about this guy. She cares about her friends. She cares about her mother. Um, and so she finds herself torn essentially between the past and the present, even though as she's in Ireland, that is essentially her present. But Mm -hmm. what's drawing her in is, is the familiar is past relationships, past obligations. Um, and so one question that I had for you, and everybody has a different answer, is that, so Domino Gleason plays Jim, her sort of, her Irish suitor. Um, do you believe that she is developing genuine feelings for him? Like romantic feelings, or do you think she just has affection for him? I don't know how to answer that. I mean, it's, uh, if she's if she's developing, if she's got affection for him, that is essentially developing feelings for him. I guess I mean, in this, like, in that context, like having seen her relationship with Tony mm-hmm. and then looking at her relationship with Jim. Now, admittedly, Tony and Jim are very different people. So her dynamic with each one is going to be different, but it almost seems to me that because she's feeling more and more obligated here in Ireland, and she's thinking, okay, maybe this is where I'll be staying. It's almost as though like, well, I might as well be with Jim. He's a good guy. I like him. Right. He's a friend. I think she sees him as a friend. I think that's the kind of affection well, I see. Um, but maybe that's me. I it, think no, it's, it's definitely it, a, diff- a different a different dynamic between the two guys. Um, but my, just, my mind goes to kind of a, a higher sort of arc that seems to be happening in her, her story. And her life was she's a very passive person. Her her entire yeah. character is passive. So so let's just follow the train. So at the beginning of the movie, uh, her sister thinks that she should go to America. Yeah. And so her sister calls uh, Jim Broadbent, who's a priest in America, who's who helps these women who come over uh, to find jobs. And so she her sister her sister contacts Jim Broadbent. She says, "Okay, I guess I'll go to America." So she goes to America. Um, she accidentally meets this Tony guy who is yeah. himself a not a pushy guy, like you said, but a very forward guy. Yeah. So she sort of falls into his rhythm and likes him. He says, hey, before you go back, because your mom died, which isn't, I mean, she had no control over that. Sister, I believe. I'm sorry, sister. sister. Yeah. Um, her sister died. Um, so her mom's left alone. So she needs to go back and take care of her mom um, for a time anyway. So that's a very passive decision. She has to go back. Yeah. So she does. Um, but before they leave, another moment where someone else says, hey, we should do this. That's Tony. He says, we should get married. Okay, I'll get married. Goes back to Ireland. Um, hey, I've got a job for you while you're here. You're, you've got this accounting experience now. Why don't you help us out for a few weeks? Okay, I'll do that. Um, here's a guy that we know that you probably really like. Why don't you go on a date with him? Okay, I'll do that. Yeah. Even though I don't like any of the guys from, from my town, I'll go yeah. out with him. Well, yeah, he does seem like a nice guy. Maybe... By the time she gets to that point, she has not done a, almost hasn't done a single yeah. active thing in the movie. So it stands to reason that if this guy, Jim, is charming enough, it does, he'd actually, despite the way we kind of colored him before, he actually does have a plan for his life as much yeah. as Tony does. Absolutely. Tony has that moment where he like shows her the, the, I, I thought of Back to the Future. It's like the, the big yeah. open field where he's going to like make up, like build a bunch of houses. Um, that's his family. So he's got a big plan. So does Jim. It's not as, grandiose right but it's the same thing so she says wow one, one could be seen as a very american plan oh absolutely the other, an extremely You're, irish plan totally that's <laughs> a yeah, absolutely um so and, anyway so by the time she gets to the point where she's at dinner with uh, jim 
and he seems to be the kind of guy that she can relate to. Yeah. And in fact, at one point, uh, I forget the conversation, but there's something that some some moment where he asks her a question like, "How?" She says, "Well, it seems almost like you're thinking about something." He goes, "Well, what would I be thinking, or what would that look like?" And, he, and she goes. I don't know. And it almost seems like he was going to say, he should say something like has been heard a couple of times in the movie, which is, um, well, I've totally lost my train on that because I can't remember the exact line. But in any case, she gets to that point and she's, she's like, this seems good. Everything that's happening right now seems like a good plan. And I don't really have to do anything. It's not that she's thinking that or that she's a lazy person, but she's a person who responds to the things that's happening to her outside of her own control. And so I can see her developing a fondness for him based on all the surrounding circumstances. And you know what? I do have a job here in Ireland. You know, I do have family here. These guys aren't as bad as I thought they were before I left for New York. Maybe I could make a life for here. I do have a commitment back to poor Tony back in back in New York, but I'll just stop listening or reading his letters. Yeah, I just put those to the side, and it'll it, it'll go away. Um, so that that's why it's hard for me to kind of think about whether or not she's actually having an effect uh, yeah. affection for him because I feel like that it's just another um, acting on a passive moment, if if you can put it that way. She is a very passive character, and I would say, you know, the the mindset that you're talking about is a is a childish one. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, when you're a kid and even a teenager, your life is kind of dictated to you uh, by your parents, by teachers, by bosses, whatever it is. And you're not, you don't have a whole lot of agency in your own life. Right. And so, and the idea of if I stop reading his letters, it's like he doesn't exist. If yeah. I ignore the problem, maybe it'll go away. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes in life that happens, which is unfortunate because then you start to think that it'll happen for everything and it doesn't. Yeah. Um, taxes, for example. <laughs> so, um, but that's a very childlike way of, of thinking. And so, and I don't mean to to uh, come down on Ailish. It's where she is in her life. There's this, there Absolutely. comes this moment when you have to, to make a very firm decision. And she did say yes to Tony. And I think she genuinely does love Tony. I don't think that is a false thing. I think thing. so. Um, I think she could come to love Jim, but I don't think she's there yet. Um, it would almost have to be in the fashion of a like an arranged marriage that happened to work yeah. out. Yeah, there's al- there's almost a might as well attitude yeah. to it. He's a good guy, nothing, nothing terribly wrong yeah. with him. And... Um, which is why, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people have problems with what could be seen as a deus ex machina in that her old boss in Ireland finds out yep. about her her marriage to Jim back home and calls her in just to kind of lord uh, Tony. it. Uh, Tony, pardon me. Uh, just kind of lord it over her. And it's this moment, honestly, it's something that I didn't really, I love that scene even though I could see it being uh, structurally problematic. Uh, but you know what? Given what we're saying now, which is the idea of moving from child to adult, that scene works really well, both thematically and I would say emotionally, for the character because her whole life people have said, you should, maybe you should do this, but they say it with, her, with, their, with be- the best of intentions. It might benefit them, but they also genuinely think it will benefit her. This woman is trying to actively exert control. 
trying to reassert her authority in a way that is that is aggressive and malevolent. Sure, she's setting up a blackmail essentially. Yeah. And and it's not even clear what she wants except that she just wants control. Mm-hmm. And there's this thing, I gotta say, there's an element to adulthood that I really like, which is you can't really tell me what to do if you're just somebody. <laughs> Really, no, but maybe the law, the law can tell me what to do. But if I'm not breaking the law, no one can tell me what to do. And that now, if you, if you want to go with that attitude, then you actually wind up being childish in a different way. Sure. But the level of freedom that can be afforded you as an adult. And if you'll pardon me, when we talk about the American dream, which is what she has, is starting to experience, there the idea is you're free to make your own way. And so she comes back here and realizes that, yeah, she could live here and it'd probably be a pleasant life, but there's no actual freedom if she's only ever doing what other people are suggesting. And she finally comes up against somebody who is doing, who's kind of doing the same thing, only doing it more obviously negative, uh, negatively. And so I think she realizes, oh my gosh, my whole life is this. People aren't quite so mean about it. And I don't think they're actively trying to manipulate me, but this woman is trying to dictate to me what I'm going to do. Right. And everybody has been doing that. So you know what? No, I'm not doing that. I have a life back home, you know, and that is home now. And it's nothing against this village or these people or Jim or my mom or my best friend, it's nothing against them, but life goes on and I'm an, I'm an adult now and my life is back in Brooklyn and it's a really wonderful, it's a wonderful scene because she's standing up for herself in a way that is really meaningful. It's a, it's a scene that has satisfaction on several levels. And the, the sort of the top mo- most surfacey level is, yeah, she's sticking it to that mean old boss. Yeah. Um, and so you feel good that she's been able to stand up. But subliminally, that same moment is all about the fact that she's transitioning from a person who's passive, acting on passive things or having life yeah. act on her to choosing for herself that she's going to do this. First of all, in a sense, she actually does have an obligation to Tony. So it, sure. that's kind of making her decision for her. But it's... It's the fact that it's a responsibility that she's willing to take back up. And she's doing it by telling this woman, you know what? I already know that. And what she say? My name is, and she says what her her new last name is. That's my name. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to do what I want to do. So it's a a revelation for her character. It's like in that chair, I think she she actually even stands up Mm -hmm. to tell her this. She says it. I'm doing my own thing and you can't lord it over me. I'm walking out. Now there's there's another part that I, I maybe just in recent years I've started to do it, it's like you know even bad guys have feelings <laughs> yeah and she's essentially the bad guy in that scene if not the whole movie and or at least the Irish sections of the movie and why why is she that way why is this boss trying to lord old boss really trying to lord it over her by telling her something that she knows that's a secret I have a theory well the theory is that she you know she never got out of town herself and she's stuck doing the same thing that she probably maybe her yeah. mom did or her own boss didn't. So now she's doing this thing stuck in this yeah. little shop, which is we want to agree, I hope, that that's not a bad thing in and of itself. Right. But if you're a certain personality type or if you're yeah. um, a person who who feels, 
for good or bad or for right or wrong should be doing something else or is better than this, so to speak, right. but you're still there because of circumstances of your own, then you are going to behave that way to this person who thinks that they have the power to just go off to America and be their yeah. own person. And what do you think? You're better than me, better than the choices yes, I made? Yeah. Exactly. So, and I can't remember visually, I just can't remember the image so much. I remember, remember Ailish walking out, but I don't remember the look on old boss's face, but right. I, I'm hoping that the character, the actor and the director thought that through and gave her like a little, a little moment of sadness. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, that was my chance to 40 years ago and yeah. I didn't take it. I should have let her go or something like that, but I don't really know that the movie did that. Yeah. And, and it's worth noting that when Ailish finally does stand up for herself, yes, it's against this woman, but she first starts, the first thing she starts talking about is the town. She doesn't say, I mean, she eventually goes to like, you know, what, what did you even, what were you even going to do with this information? Did you even know? Like it, you just wanted some level of control over something in your life. Yeah. Uh, you had it when I was an employee. Now you don't, but you think you can reassert that. Mm -hmm. Um, but she first says like something like, I remember why I left this town and you know, again, not to bash the town itself, but it might be her own way of saying like, I don't like the person that I was when I was here. I was hmm. someone who just went along and I can't. And if I stay here, that's who I'm going to be. That's what this town does to me specifically. Other people, it might not do that to, but it does it to me hmm. and I'm going to go back home. And it's a really nice moment. And there's, and there is a sadness. I feel bad for Jim. I feel bad for mom. the people, for her mom. I feel oh bad gosh. for the people that she's leaving behind, but that is the nature of it. You know, it's, you know, my family moved around a fair amount when I was younger and, uh, something that my parents told me that, uh, seemed like a cop out, but, um, but I totally get now, which is that, like, people are in your life for a time. Some people will be in your life for a long time, maybe even your whole life. But sometimes there's just like a season when these are the people, you know, but then God calls you into a different situation or calls one of them away or whatever it is. And, you, maybe you try to keep in touch, but the fact is you both have your current life to think about. And, you know, there's a, there's a certain loss there. There's a certain grief there, but that's just kind of the way life works. Unless, of course, you choose to live in a small town your whole life and everybody else around you does as well. Um, but that's highly unlikely. Right. Um, not Again, as you said, not to bash small town life in itself. Uh, but if you're somebody who feels like this is not for you, but you stick around, uh, you know, some, I'll say sometimes there's a genuine obligation, like somebody is sick and you're the only one that can take care of them. All right. That I understand a little bit more. You know, there, there are logistical obligations that I, that I can understand, but, um, but emotional obligation, you know, and I'm somebody that feels obligated to most people most of the time, uh, emotionally, but, uh, but there, it is shockingly freeing, uh, when you realize that you don't, you don't, ha you're essentially, you're the one holding yourself prisoner. It's not them. They're asking you to do something. They might be manipulating you, but if you, but you might let yourself be manipulated or you might just volunteer something anticipating what someone will ask. And in the end, like it's a thing you're kind that you can do to yourself. I don't want to say that that's the case for everybody, but well, there's the question of the sister before she dies. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, the movie's about sacrifice as well and all kinds of sacrifices. And you got it. You don't really get much of the inside of her sister Rose's head. Right. You see what she does. And what she does is she helps her sister out of this town. Yeah. First of all, but beyond that, she has to, someone has to take care of mom. Someone has to be there with mom. Right. And it's going to be her. She's decided this. Yeah. But you get a sense, and this is where acting and directing comes in. Um, you get a real sense that she wished that she could go to. Sure. There's this beautiful scene, and it makes me cry just thinking about it, or want to cry. Just thinking about it. Will you hold me if I cry? Yeah, all right. Okay. Um, where uh, Ailish has already gone, right, Ailish, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I keep getting the name wrong. Uh, she's already gone off, and it cuts back to like a, a scenario in the kitchen with the mom or something, and they're yeah. sitting down and they're eating. And there's a little bit of conversation, just a sort of like banal day-to-day kind of conversation, like, oh, did you go to the market today or something? So they're having that conversation, it cuts to Rose, and she's taking a bite, and there's a tear coming down her cheek. Yeah. What is that tear all about? It's it's that she is here, and she loves her mom. She loves her mom enough to stay with her, yeah. and she loves her sister enough to help her to get sent away. Right. Um, and she loves her own obligation enough that she's not going to shirk it. Yeah. So she stays, and that, that one moment is one of the most beautiful moments in a movie that I've seen in yeah. a while. Because it's so quiet and silent and true. And so many people make that decision in their life to not kind of escape from the the trap that they feel like they're in with their small town or with their family. As much as they might despise their family, they still feel an obligation. So they do it. And I I don't know that I could be that kind of person. Here I am in Los Angeles. My entire family is back in the South. So. You know, and then she she passes away. So let's carry this further. So the girl uh, Rose passes away. Her mom is left alone again. Yeah. Her mom needs someone. So Ailish comes back, but then Ailish ends up going away. So who's the better sister? You kind of have to ask yeah. the question. She's making this sort of movie moment where she does stand up to the boss and she yeah. does decide that she's an adult now. She's got responsibilities back in New York to this Tony guy. But she's also shirking her responsibility as the daughter of this woman who needs someone at home. Yeah. And is that okay? It's okay in a movie, I guess, because it, you feel good for the character for doing what is best yeah. for her. And that's what movies seem to be the apotheosis of. It's sure. like, you know, the American dream is like doing your own thing. It's being independent from that kind of responsibility. Yeah. Um, and yet Rose sacrificed and she died doing it. So what do you make of that? Somebody needs to be George Bailey. Hmm. You know, true. like when you think of what we're talking about, uh, his brother goes off to war and does some amazing things. And George has to like hold down the fort and, hmm. and the fort is pretty good. Sometimes he loves his wife. He loves his, his children. It's not that bad of a life, but it's not the one he had envisioned for himself. And sometimes life because of obligation, like again, logistical obligations, like I'm talking about, Sometimes it does force you to do this thing that you weren't intending and that you might and that, you know, the the younger you might uh, condemn you, you for, you know, yeah. um, but you do need those people. You know, G- for example, Jim, he feels like his place is here. Yeah. He's choosing to be here. Rose might not be choosing to be here. I think she's. I think she's happy to be here. She obviously loves her mother and I don't think she, I don't think she 
hates being here, but I think she would like to be in the U.S. with her sister. So I think that tier is two-pronged. I think it is, you know, I feel bad that I'm here, but I'm glad I'm not the only one. That I'm glad I'm, I'm glad that, uh, hang on. I'm glad that Ailish is not here with me. Hmm. Um, you know, it's that, I guess it's that goodwill hunting kind of thing too, where his best friend says like, you know, I want you to go off. I want to knock on that door and you not answer. Yeah. Boy, and, that still gets me every single time. Yeah. And so, uh, and as far as her mother, yeah, that is, it's, a, it's something that I thought is like, okay, well, what's going to happen to this woman? She's not necessarily in dire straits. And, that's, in and, and honestly, I feel like it's entirely possible that Ailish with Tony will work something out. They might bring her mother back to the U S or they might go visit more often. But now that it's like, but that's the thing is, is the nature of this particular time in her life is that it's one over the other. But I found as strange as it may sound in my own life, that once you embrace where you are right now, everything else starts to fall into place. It's not a clear choice. You can actually, when I say you have it all, I don't mean like in the, in the, you can have it all, everybody. It's not that. I mean that she can go back and forth to Ireland or mm-hmm. they can go stay with her mom for a while, or she can go stay with her mom for a while while Tony is, is setting up his business. He, there's freedom in acknowledging where you are right now. Um, but she's keeping a secret, uh, from her, her family and friends in Ireland and as long as she's keeping that secret, she can't work out any solutions. Yeah. You know, if she had said, Hey, I'm, if she had said, Hey, I'm here, but you know what? I actually got married right before I came. So I need to go back there. Mom, what are we going to do? But she doesn't, you yeah. know, because she, she is trying to figure out which one suits her more or which one, you know, she's trying to decide which obligation she's going to, uh, pursue more. Right. Um, and I think that's that's one of the things that I love about this film is that on the surface it would it would have this nice sheen and it would have, it would appear so simple and easy, but a lot of the the decisions and circumstances that Ailish is facing are not easy circumstances, um, and and it's arguable like if the choices that she makes are objectively the best choices what are objectively the best choices in this instance you know did she make a huge mistake getting married to tony knowing full well that her sister is gone now Hmm. and someone's gonna have to take care of her mother maybe she was setting up her own out maybe um maybe she was you know putting an anchor there in the u.s so that okay i at least know where i I'm not going to stray too far from there and and be here. I suppose that's uh, a theory, but I, I think I think I still um, agree with the idea that she's basically just a passive person. And Tony says we should do this, so she did it. Right. Uh, although it's, I don't want to give the impression that she has absolutely no agency. I think she does want to marry Tony. I think she is. But at the same time, if he had asked six months later or a year later or two years later, I think she would have been happy to go along with any of that. Hmm. Um, if he had asked two months earlier, she would have been happy to go with any of that. But she she does love him and he loves her and she can kind of see what a future would look like with him. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's 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 rough because, you know, in my own marriage, 
I was thinking about marriage before Jen was. And so, and then even when we were engaged, like there are moments when she had doubts and I didn't. Um, and so I had to ask myself, okay, wait, am I forcing her into this? Am I like, does she actually not want to do this? And it's like, no, it's just even two people that love each other aren't going to be on exactly the same page all the time. And then Jen eventually got there and everything's fine. Um, and so I feel like with, with Ailish, uh, at least I hope that when she said yes, it wasn't like, well, I don't really like this guy, but I don't want to hurt his feelings. <laughs> it's not that yeah. it's that she genuinely likes maybe even, I would say does love this guy and this is what the future looks like. So let's do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And I did want to briefly talk about, uh, some of the performances specifically uh Saoirse Ronan as Ailish who I was first made aware of in uh Atonement 10 years ago for me it was Hannah okay yeah and I don't know which one was first uh Atonement was first and then Hannah and very different types of roles there she was nominated for supporting actress for Atonement did hmm. you see Atonement I did not it's not that good of a movie she's great in it um no question about it but I think the film is a little bit too soulless hmm. um but uh, but Joe Wright, who directed Atonement, also directed Hannah, and she it's a very different type of character sure. in Hannah. This uh, young girl who's extremely capable and has been trained very believably to, capable. It's amazing. She's yeah. such a small person, but she's yeah. doing all these things, and you're like, I believe it. I believe she she could do this. Yeah, and she has a very a strength and inner strength that works well for Hannah, and it works well for this movie as well. As quiet as she is, and as yeah. passive as she seems. She's still carrying around with her this, yeah. you can tell. She's just, it's, there's a strong person inside of there. There's a real forceful, per and, and even in atonement, honestly, there's a forceful personality, um, even in the midst of being pleasant. Um, and you, and it, and I think it's important for a character like this, because if you had an actress who couldn't play the inner strength, but could play the pleasantness, then it's not such a tragedy that she's so passive. But if you get the impression like this woman is capable of a lot and she can probably withstand a lot, it's a bummer that she's letting other people dictate her life to her. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, uh, very few actors make the transition from kids to adults uh, seamlessly. And I think she absolutely has. I, I, I absolutely adore her performance in Brooklyn. I think the only movie that I've seen her in where she was kind of wasted as an actress was, and it pains me to say this, but it was Grand, Budapest, Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm. Because like so many other characters in Wes Anderson movies, who I, I love every Wes Anderson movie, almost to a fault, some of them. But he does tend to prop people up as you know, representing something. Or, yeah. and you in say that prop people up, you mean use them as props? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely he does that. Um, even some of his favorite performers, like Bill Murray, can can be that, and depending on what the movie is. But she is sort of like the, um, in Grand Budapest Hotel, she's sort of like the the beautiful girlfriend, the unattainable yeah. one that shouldn't belong with the character that she's with, which is the main, the bellboy, the yeah. bellhop guy. Um, just seems strange. So you, it's it's an interesting visual conflict, these two people together. Yeah. And that's, and she is lovely in, in the movie and she gets to work at a bakery where all these kind of confections are like pouring out and it's yeah. a great Wes, Wes Anderson sort of template for cool shots, but she's not it should have been someone else because she's such a great actress that she shouldn't just be a prop <laughs> ever. 
Yeah, and that's honestly one of the reasons that I have a hard time with Wes Anderson in general and Grand Budapest Hotel specifically. Um, because when he when he really delves into a character, he's he's great. Like I think Ray Fiennes is is marvelous and is given a lot to do. But so many other characters. I, I feel this way about um, The Life Aquatic as well, where there really only are about three leads and then everybody else is essentially a prop, but Wes Anderson doesn't seem to know it. And so it's like, let's get everybody together in the sub. It's like, that's fine. I don't know who most of these people are. I mean, I know who they are, but I don't know anything about them. You seem to have forgotten that. Well, Wes Anderson, we could talk about, we need a whole episode about him because he's, he's doing something else, I think. And it's an overarching sort of archness. Um, He's communicating feelings and it, such a completely different way that if yeah. you look at it or if you kind of acknowledge that or absorb that or allow that to be the case, then you're kind of okay with her being a prop or with Bill Murray yeah. being a prop because there's something else that you're enjoying about it, which is the visual beauty of it or the melancholy of it. You just sort of, that's, that was what, what got me into loving Wes Anderson was yeah. Bottle Rocket and, and Rushmore and, and Tenenbaums are all three, especially yeah. Rushmore, I think. Um, just melancholy. You're just like wallowing in melancholy. And I felt that way when those movies came out. Yeah. So, um, so I, I mean, I, I denigrate him for using her as a prop, but at the same time, I understand why he was doing because he's not really doing, he's not doing Lawrence of Arabia, you know, he's, or, or this movie. He's not doing right. Brooklyn. He's doing his movie. Yeah. And someone needs to be there. <laughs> someone needs to be in so, that shot. Can't just doing... use a mannequin, though. No. I'm sure he'd love it. Um, sorry. I do tend to denigrate uh, Wes Anderson. I know a you do. Bit, even though he, he crafts, you know, beautiful films. Bottle Rocket is my favorite, and you hate it. Do I hate it? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't like it. That's for sure. You hate movies where, where people are oafish, or I forget oaf, how you... That's the word. Yes. I don't like movies where people are oafs. I don't see an like, oaf I don't like anywhere having, in that movie. I don't like having to spend time with these people. Oh, boy. Um, so Yours a zero out in the car. What was that? I'm quoting Bottle Rocket. Sorry. Oh, okay. Sorry. There's a reason that I... I thought things seemed a little bit more mundane, and yet somehow cutesy at the same time. Um, okay. <laughs> Moving on. Um... Uh, <laughs> Can I mention one moment? Uh, yes, please do. I, I know we're talking about performances, and I sure. don't even remember this person's name in the movie, so it's not a performance per se, but it's a moment I thought was handled really well, which is the moment when Ailish uh, uh, Ailish uh, goes up to one of her friends in the boarding house, and she's in the, the woman's in the bathroom, mm. and so she's standing in the in the doorway talking to her, and she this woman apparently had been married before, and Ailish says, "Wouldn't you like to be married again?" It's, I mean, she's dropped the question at the beginning. She's talking to her in the middle of it. She says, wouldn't you like to be married again? And the woman says, of course I'd like to be married again. I would love to be married. And she paints this picture for Ailish of what married life is like. She says, yeah, I would love to be sitting at the table. And she's saying this with affection, by the way, it sounds denigrating, but, and I would love to be sitting there with him and he's reading the paper and we're eating breakfast and he's not listening to me. And in that moment, I'm thinking about this moment, talking to you in the doorway. Yeah. And it's like, in, in like 30 seconds of that little moment, yeah. it's sort of the theme of the whole movie. Absolutely. She's like, everywhere I am going to be for the rest of my life, I'm going to kind of be thinking about somewhere else Yeah. that seems better because I'm not there anymore. Yeah. And the moment that I'm wishing for now is to be married to someone else and sort of the mundane life of a married couple. But that's not going to be great once I actually get there. And I'm right. aware of that. And she, and she can say it because she's been married. Yeah. And she's got the perspective. And it's the same thing that, that 
Ailish can say once she's back in New York, which we never see, when she goes back to New York and she's talking about her past life, her two past lives now back in Ireland, first her entire childhood, and then that month, two months when she was back kind of building a new life for herself where she thought she was. She can talk about those moments yeah. in the past tense. And they can be awesome. They can be great. Oh, wouldn't it be great to be back there in that shop where I was working as a kid? Yeah. Everything is idealized when you're an adult about your childhood. Yeah. The past always seems sweeter. You know, America always looks greener. Um, is there another reason why John Ford called his movie How Green Was My Valley? Yeah. Um, because the grass is always greener in your memory. Well, and, you know, uh, I forget what we were talking about. Um but I've quoted this before. It's such a simple, uh, such a simple sentiment. But I, I really like the way it's phrased, and it's on a, an episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld nice. and Joel Hodgson. Ooh, one of my favorites. Yeah, my favorite episodes. Uh, and they go to this '50s diner, and Jerry is saying, "Like, it's another '50s diner. Why are there so many '50s diners? Why are we always looking back? Why are we always looking back at the past?" And he's getting, you know, really. <laughs> Uh, Seinfeldy, really Seinfeldy about it. <laughs> and Jen, Joel Hodgson says, because when you look at the past, you know what you're gonna say. You know what to say about the past. You don't know what to say about the future. Mm. And it's such a and it, <clears throat> there's such a, a a simplicity to that. But I like the way he phrases it. You know what you're gonna say, which is we all know the official line on the past. It's very easy. It's it's. Even if it's a difficult past, you know, you've got 2020 hindsight, you've been able to compartmentalize it just well enough mm -hmm. that I can sum up this element of my past and I'm going to say three sentences and I've probably said them before. Um, and that, and it's my script. So, what was that? It's my script. Ex oh, absolutely. Um, and this feeling that, uh, Anything that is easy is probably going to be a little bit idealized uh, mm -hmm. in our minds because, you know, it's hard to idealize something that's incredibly complicated and that you're in right now or the un the terrifying unknown of the future. There's a reason yeah. that the ghost of Christmas future is basically the Grim Reaper. True. Uh, it's terrifying because it's unknown. But there's a there's a skill, I think, that uh, people can learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess the word for it is savoring. It's like when you, sure. when you are in a moment and... Whether it's good or bad, and I, I've been able to do this on occasion, um, you go, wait a minute, and you just sort of stop. It's called stop and smell the roses, whatever cliche yeah. you want to put on it. It's like stopping and realizing kind of where you are and who you're with and the good time that you're having or the bad time that you're having and going, this is this moment. Yeah. And these moments of clarity that are so wonderful when you have them and they're yeah. rare. You go, I, and I've found in my own life that those moments – I don't get nostalgic about I've, if I remember being, if I remember savoring that moment yeah. and I can, I have a, a vivid memory. It's funny cause it's also nostalgia, but if I have a vivid memory of having savored that moment, then I don't feel as, it doesn't feel like as lost of a moment yeah. because it felt more real in those few seconds that I was actually taking sure. stock of it and savoring it and going, ah, this is great. Yeah. I'm going to enjoy this right now. I'm not going to take a picture of what's going on right now so I can look at it later. Right. I'm actually going to not take a picture and I'm going to just remember how much I enjoyed it. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a skill that I don't have, but that I'm aware that I need to be better at. Cause the few times that I have been able to do it, it's like, yeah. it's, it's like, it's like a load off your shoulders to not be nostalgic about something. Just go, yeah, that was a great time. 
and then move on. Yeah. Not to dwell on it to the point where you're like, ah, I wish I was there yeah. again. And I think it can, it can help to, and this actually could get us into the companion film. And I think it helps to recognize what you have now that you didn't have then. Um, because when you look back on something, you know, we talk about compartmentalizing and putting into a box. What, what I'm essentially saying is you own it, you know, everything about it and it is yours. You possess it. And so you possess the past and it's like, oh, I don't really possess the present. It's like, that's fine. But there are things that you have in the present that if you, if you take the time to realize it, you didn't have these things in the past. Yeah. Every, every moment of your life has sad times and happy times often at this exact same moment. Like there, are, there are like five different elements of my life at the moment. Um, like different, there's my marriage, school, uh, podcasting and probably others that I can't think about. And so it's rare for all of those things to be going great at the exact same time. Of course. Um, and so, but that's how it's always been. You know, it's, it'd be easy for me to look back on, you know, my senior year of high school. And I feel like I had a particularly good senior year of high school where I was just working at a video store and, uh, acting in a bunch of plays and all that, and just really doing some great stuff. Um, and just think like, ah, those were the days like, yeah, but I wasn't married. <laughs> I didn't, I wasn't hanging out with the love of my life all the time. Not that we hang out all the time, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, she's here with she's us not, now. She's just being really quiet. And yeah, she's, uh, crouched there in the corner there, which is an <laughs> odd choice. I think Very creepy. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, um, it's that, that acknowledgement that, Things might seem better then, but today might seem better tomorrow. And such is the nature of looking backwards. There's a, yeah. a, a, a quote here by John Piper. You can wreck your life by neglecting the past uh, and you neglect your life by an excessive living in the past. Hmm. Um, and that's the thing is I think it is important to look backwards and see how, how far you've come and maybe how far you haven't come. Uh, so that you can work a little bit harder, whatever it is. Um, I think that is important. You know, that idea of, of those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. That's fine. But you can't live there. You can't set up shop there, you know. And that's what I, one of the things I love about Brooklyn so much is that the past is physically represented. She can, she literally is given the option of going and living <laughs> physically in the past. Yeah. Um, and that's that's something that I really liked quite a bit. But we will move on to our companion film, Ooh. which uh, I feel like I should just throw to you instinctively because <laughs> uh, you love this guy so much. Uh, the other W.A. We are talking about, wait, what? W.A. Oh, what? Wes Anderson and Woody Allen. Oh, yeah. Mm. It means nothing. <laughs> just came no, to mind. No, not really. <laughs> uh, so we're talking about Midnight in Paris, which came out in 2011, written and directed by Woody Allen, starring, as always, a bunch of people, yeah. including Owen Wilson, Rachel McAdams, uh, Michael Sheen, Marion Cotillard, Tom Hiddleston. Kurt Fuller. Kurt Fuller. I, I jumped over him because not, not everybody knows who he is, but I love him. <laughs> can I, can I tell you a story? Sure. I don't even know if I told you the story. I don't or think if I told so, you yeah. the story. I emphasize the wrong word there. Um, so I, uh, I had jury duty. It was just probably like nine, 10 months ago, maybe a year ago. Right. And he was in my jury pool. Kurt uh -huh. Fuller. Kurt Fuller was in my jury pool. And he's exactly like he is in every show he's on. 
um, meaning amiable, funny. I mean, it's not that he's that way in every every show. But he, he often plays villains and slime balls. But he has. But the the core of who he is is he almost seems like approachable even in those cases. Sure, there's something kind of funny about him. That's true. He's almost like Tobolowski in that way. Yeah, where it almost doesn't matter what he's doing. You kind of want to hang out with that guy. Yeah, and uh, so he was there, and he had to kind of recuse recuse himself a bit because the 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 judge was like asking everyone questions, obviously, as mm-hmm. were the lawyers. And uh, the lawyer said, haven't I seen you before? And he goes, well, yes, you have. Uh, you've, you've seen me. Uh, you've, I've, I've actually been you before. And she goes, what do, you, what do you mean? Well, I don't know if you've seen Good Wife uh, or any named off a couple yeah. more things. And so he's, he's been, so he was trying to make a joke. And yeah. she's a judge and, you know, court and she's yeah. not having any of it so but anyway he kind of let got let go a little later just but in the normal fashion that right. most people do it's just like answering questions yes i've had run-ins with cops and yeah. all this kind of stuff so but it was kind of cool to kind of be hanging around him and talking to him and did you talk to him well because i i felt like i had an in because i worked on shows that he'd actually been on oh sure um not that i met him then but um um so i, I said hey i work in tv i i've seen you and so we just got to talking a couple of times. And he's a very genuinely funny, laid-back guy. And uh, anyway, so that's why I named him, named him there. Nothing wrong with that. I wish that he had been given a better character in this film, uh, honestly. I feel like it's a little bit simplistic, his character. Well, that whole, if I can just get into it, sure. um, that whole section of the movie is, uh, it's almost like he's designed it to be shrill. So let's explain okay. what Midnight in Paris is May about. I? I'll throw to you. Uh, I feel like you've simple, seen it more recently than I have. I, I saw it uh, a few weeks ago. Okay. Um, again, so uh, Owen Wilson is a writer, a Hollywood writer. He's a, a screenwriter, and he's in Paris with his fiance and her parents. Um, and so they're they're just kind of visiting. He realizes he loves Paris, and he sort of romanticizes the old school Paris scene. You know, the writers like Hemingway and these guys, and artists like Picasso and Gertrude Stein, kind of back in the twenties. Um, that whole generation of artists, and he he he, fan- he fantasized about being part of that. So one night he's taking a walk, trying to get away from her family, who is the shrill, politically minded family, and these other people that are kind of that they know who are also in Paris. They're very annoying and know everything about Paris sights and sounds. And he's just kind of over it. So he goes, and this car pulls up right at midnight. This old like twenties car guy leans out, says, "Hey, you need a ride?" And Owen Wilson's like. Well, sure, I, I could use a ride. And so he gets in the car and, and the, sure. ends up back in the 20s with yeah. these people. And so the movie is like kind of hemming and hawing itself about whether he's actually going back there. At a certain point, you kind of right. discover that he, he must be for some of the things to be happening. In any case, so he goes back and he sees uh, the life and he sees all these characters and people that he's known and loved. Uh, Salvador Dali is there. Yeah. Um, Louis Bunuel, the filmmaker, is there. So all these yeah. people are there and he's like... F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah, uh, uh, his his wife, what's her name? Uh, Zelda? Yes. Zelda Fitzgerald. Um, so they're all there. And he falls in love with a woman who's there who's sort of the subject of Picasso's latest paintings. And they get to know each other. And meanwhile, she she's fantasizing about being back in the Belle Epoque, back yeah. in the 1890s, which to her is the, the better period of, of French history. And yeah. all the artists, Toulouse-Lautrec and all these guys were back then. So she wishes she could be back there, and he's like, well, "Why would you ever want to be back there? This is the best time to be in the twenties." Yeah. And so he's trying to convince her, and they end up back in the Belle Epoque, and he has a, a an epiphany. He calls, it, I think, I think a small epiphany. 
um, or a little epiphany. He says, you know what? The, the best thing is li- in life is to be where you are and to yeah. enjoy where you are. And so, he ends up back with his, um, back in Paris, but he makes the added realization in his own personal life that these people that he's been hanging around with, his fiance and her family, aren't for him anymore. Yeah. So, he basically lets go of all that and the Woody Allen thing is just let everything go. Yeah. And he, there's this woman that he's been kind of hanging out with at the, uh, the, the brick brac shop and hangs out with her and, you know, he's going to have this wonderful idealized life in modern day Paris with this beautiful anonymous woman. Yeah. So, it's still a Woody Allen movie and yeah. he still doesn't actually learn the lesson because the most beautiful, the most riveting, the best parts of the movie are all set in the 20s. Yeah. So, he's clearly still in, and let's also not forget that in, so you, you sort of let the leash go and now I'm talking. Um, Woody Allen's own uh, sort of little epiphany that we should all like just enjoy where we are in life. We're in the in the 2010s, you know. Right. Let's just enjoy that. Meanwhile, cut to a few years later, he's making magic in the moonlight. He's making cafe society. He's still living in the past to a yeah. large degree and wants to be back in some past time. Yeah. He's an old man living in the past. And then he made Blue Jasmine, which doesn't make the present sound that great. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. I love that movie, though. It's a, it's a great performance by her. I don't know if I, I... I'm still... Jury's still out, speaking of jury duty, on whether I like the movie itself. Hmm. There's a lot of... Mm, I don't know. We could talk about that, but... Yeah. Um, anyway, Midnight in Paris is a very fun movie to watch because for a number of other... Uh, among among, among an, a bunch of other reasons, the characterizations of these 20s personalities, right. or people that actually live back there, are actually... And this is a, something that's leveled against the movie. It's like these are the history 101 version, versions of right. these movies. Like for, uh, people, for instance, Heming, Hemingway talks in this chopped sort of very short sentences and it's all about the war. And to be a man is to fight in the war. And he says these sort of like uh, epigram sort of things about life like he does in his books. Yeah. Um, and uh, Gertrude Stein is this sort of hard-edged woman who has nothing but the best or the, the, the most uh, dominating, domineering kind of things to say about what you should be doing with your life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and Salvador Dali is this sort of pie-in-the-sky, yeah. you know, surrealist who just says these bizarre things about rhinoceroses and giraffes. Yeah. And, and so it's these, these characterizations that are not... Yeah. Uh, who these people were. They're not fleshed out through dimensional versions of it. He's not trying to do that with this movie. Right. Um, so, in a way, he's sort of calling attention to that, or he's himself, Woody Allen, meaning, uh, has nothing but a 101 version of that in his own mind. Maybe he knows more, but isn't letting on or something. I would, I would give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he is trying to show that, like, when we think of the past as this better time, we are thinking of a very much simplified version of the past. And so if the opening gonna... credits are exactly to that as well. The opening credits were leveled against him as nothing but postcard oh, yeah. sites that you would see in Paris, like the rainy yeah. street and the cafe and the fountains and the Arc de Triomphe and all these kind of things are what you would go to see if you were in Paris. Right. And it's not really Paris. That's the tourist version of Paris. And so, you know, the criticisms against the movie, which were many, even though everyone loved it, um, the highest grossing movie that he's ever made, above yeah. and beyond Annie Hall, Crimes and Misdemeanors, any of these great movies that we think of, Hannah and Her Sisters, this was the highest grossing movie for Woody Allen. And is it any wonder that he set, like, other movies, like in Rome, yeah. in Barcelona, 
and all these other places because he's like, well, maybe they love me in America when I do Europe. You know, let's just keep doing this. Match Point. He made Match Point. Match Point People was the like first that. one yeah. in London um, in 2005, I believe, yeah. or six. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's a very successful movie. If you look at it a certain way, it's a very unsuccessful movie. If you look at it a different way. Yeah. And, and honestly, I feel like that's almost appropriate. This is a guy who is trying to appreciate the moment but also can't help but look back at the past because we know what we're going to say. We're going to say that Hemingway was this way and Gertrude Stein was this way and every and ideas were just flowing and you know there's artistic brilliance everywhere yeah. you looked and Paris itself is beautiful and all that. Um, meanwhile, that could be happening right now and we're not even aware of it. Right. Um, I think a lot of filmmakers, if we can bring it to us, yeah. or people who love film, think about the 70s a lot. Sure. And that sort of Belle Epoque sort of 70s thing with Spielberg and Coppola and Scorsese and Woody Allen himself yeah. and all these guys doing these, um, Hal Ashby, all these guys doing these really incredible things with the form that had not been done before because they could because the studio system had been yeah. demolished and all that. So we're thinking, we think about that era as, oh, wouldn't it be great to sit around with Spielberg and come up with ideas and like spitball Indiana Jones and... Yeah. And all this stuff. And it's like, it wouldn't be that way. You'd be getting his coffee. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't, yeah. you're not, you wouldn't be Spielberg. You'd still be you in the seventies. Yeah. And Spielberg talks about how he wakes up from nightmares that he's still yeah. working on Jaws. Exactly. So why would he, he, he doesn't want to be back there <laughs> yeah. back then. I think he's happy the movie is done and that he made it. Sure. I don't think he would want to go back and make it again. Yeah. But uh, wouldn't you agree though that that is sort of like in film circles and film, oh, sure. film school circles, especially it's like, that's sort of the, the twenties Paris. And meanwhile, Spielberg, Scorsese, Coppola, Lucas, Allen, they're all big fans of the 40s and, and the 1930s. You know, mm -hmm. what is Indiana Jones? What is Star Wars? Like, reference to these 1930s series. Yeah, like, it's who, just, does, who does Spielberg talk about? He doesn't necessarily talk about even his, his co, you know, his teammates in the 70s. Yeah. He talks about Howard Hawks and Michael Curtiz and, uh, and John Ford, for, yeah. for goodness sake, especially John Ford, I think. Um, so yeah, so everybody has their past that they glorify yeah. and, and want to be more like, you know, I mean, teeing this film history class two quarters in a row is really interesting. Um, because you know, you are looking back on things and so, and because you're, you're condensing it, then obviously you are, you're going to simplify it a little bit. Um, but it's been interesting as a TA to decide what supplemental material I will be teaching. Um, and, and I try not to just fall into the traps, but you know, when we get to the 1970s, yeah, I'm going to talk about the 1970s, uh, <laughs> yeah. as this amazing time. Yeah. And, and I, I think it was an amazing time honestly. No denying like, it. in retrospect. I mean, I think the seventies do more, I think they do more than the eighties. And then there's some amazing things in the sixties, but I feel like I'd say 1968 to, I'll, I'll go right through to 1980. I feel like it was just this amazing collection of films. But then it's like, yeah, but those are the ones we remember. The ones we don't remember is because they're bad or they're True. mundane. You know, that's, that's But there's the something about, works. not to get too far off in this, I think okay. we could probably both talk about the 70s for like sure. an hour by itself, if not more, if not longer. But the 70s, when, when current filmmakers try to emulate a past era of filmmaking, mm -hmm. There's, I don't think there's any other decade that they could emulate that still feels real when they do it now. Sure. Any other decade feels like um, kind of flamboyant in the way that that decade was, the 60s or the 50s. 
because the seventies were, or at least the, especially the first half of the seventies were about, um, trying to capture something realistically. Yeah. You think of the streets of New York city and, and those, uh, you know, Scorsese movies or, uh, Cindy Lumet or, um, uh, there's a, a few more that, that were prominent. Well, I guess Woody Allen too. Yeah. Um, and you think about, well, I, Woody Allen idealized in, in the moment he was idealizing, yeah. but, but you look back. In, but it's still, you know, it's still him and Diane Keaton walking down the actual streets of New York. Right. You know, no if, real art direction. If I was to make there. a movie now and I was going to say, okay, so to the art director, to the cinematographer, I want to try to emulate what, uh, you know, Scorsese was doing in, uh, in Taxi Driver. Right. Uh, I want that look, or Sidney Lumet in Dog Day Afternoon, yeah. any of these just really great 70s, early 70s movies, New York movies. Um, they would know exactly what to do, and they could emulate that. But the casual viewer of that movie who doesn't know anything about film history, hadn't seen the 70s, wouldn't question the way it looked now. Because right. it's still, it's a, it's a version of reality. It's, yeah. That's closer to what reality actually was than the 60s was or the 80s the 80s just took it to this bizarre place yeah maybe the 90s but the 90s i think we're trying to recapture the 70s yes to a large degree with you know the independent movement of the 90s because they didn't have a lot of money could get away with trying to emulate the 70s to a certain degree and get away with it and it was still the 90s a 90s movie and felt the 90s but it had 70s capability aspects to it that still felt genuine because the 70s themselves felt genuine yeah a '60s movie doesn't feel that way. It feels stylized in a '60s way or yeah. '80s even, way. Even even the the groundbreaking films that like led to the '70s, like Bonnie and Clyde and the Wild Bunch, are shot in a, a remarkably different way than we right. see movies now, or even in the mid '70s. Right. Um, Bonnie and Clyde had to be because it was, itself was was set in the '40s. Right. Yes, I suppose so. And and you know, the Wild Bunch was was a period piece, but you you know. If you look at Chinatown, that was only a few years later, and that's set in the 1930s, mm-hmm. and it's shot with a much more modern sensibility. Yeah. Um, Neo noir. But we should, uh, but yeah, we should move on um, because, yeah, Midnight in Paris is a is a film that I see as very. It's. It's not necessarily minor Woody Allen because, in many ways, it's essential Woody Allen. Um, it became essential Woody Allen. I yeah, I guess there's that. Um, but it's, uh, it's almost like purple rose of Cairo. It's not as good as purple rose of Cairo. Uh, but when he does sort of these high concept, uh, ideas that have an odd fantasy element and he's clearly enjoying himself and it's a very pleasant thing and it's fun. It's rarely laugh out loud funny, but I'm just smiling all the way through and then it's over. And I was like, I'm glad I watched that. You know, I don't respond to it the way I did Hannah and her sisters or Crimes and Misdemeanors or, or even something like Sweet and Low Down. Um, it's, uh, but it is still a thing that I, that I enjoy. Um, I can't think of any Woody Allen fan that would say it's their favorite film of his. If you're a fan. Maybe it'd be in the top 10, maybe. Maybe. But the thing about it, I mean, you, you mentioned like Hannah and her sisters and these other movies again. Well, that's the 80s, but his 70s movies and his 80s movies were like his his halcyon days. It's like if yeah. he could go back to any era, he'd probably go back to then because he was making the best movies of his life. Yeah. Um, but but those movies were about fleshed fleshed out three-dimensional characters. Right. Um, crimes and misdemeanors well into the 90s. I think he was still making a lot of those. Um, it seems like a lot of his movies now aren't 
really even trying for that. It doesn't feel like it feels much more like an exercise in um, capturing an, a vibe. Um, sure. Cafe Society is certainly that. Ma- Magic in the Moonlight, for obvious reasons, because they're set in a different time. But even even something like um, You Will Meet a tar- Tall Dark Stranger, mm-hmm. you're you're following the plots and you're following what, what the goals of these characters are, but you never really feel like you know these people. It feels like you're being told a story with these characters yeah. and uh, to roam with love is the same way. They're I haven't very, seen a lot of these very comic. I think um, the last film of his I saw was blue Jasmine, which is 2013. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I hate to say it. I don't, I don't know that there's much to see unless you're a, a completist like right. I am with him. I mean, uh, cafe society has, is kind of pluses and minuses. It's not a great movie, but it's a beautiful movie. It's Vittorio, Vittorio Storaro. Oh, nice. I'm saying his name, Vittorio Storaro. Yeah. Um, so it's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. It really is a gorgeous movie. I rarely say that, but you look at this movie and it's like, wow, this is a beautiful movie. Yeah. But the characters are much like the ones from the previous five or six movies where you don't really feel like you're looking at actual people. You're looking at constructs, right. like a like a Wes Anderson movie, frankly. Yeah. Um, but again, he's going for different things. He's not necessarily going, and he's doing his own thing. He's a, an 80 whatever year old man yeah. who's been doing this every year since 1969. So he can do it. He, he wants to do this. He's going to do it. Yeah. Um, so you can't really fault him too much. And it's always fascinating to me that like he just, he just cranks out these movies every once in a while. He'll be, he'll be nominated for an Oscar every once in a while. He'll win. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, all right, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> it's just, he, he definitely, he seems to be almost be his own film industry. He just does things his own way mm-hmm. on his own timetable. People want to be a part of it. And then despite it all, despite it all, sometimes it does well. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes critics like it. Sometimes they don't. It's just, he is, he is doing things very much his own way all the time. I think his next movie, speaking of nostalgia, I think is also set in the fifties. I don't know what the plot is and okay. maybe no one does. What's I don't I can't remember. Okay. Untitled Woody Allen Project, I think, yeah. probably. No, I think it actually does have a title, but I can't remember the name of it. Um, but I'll be seeing it, no matter what the critics say, of no course. matter what you say, Tyler. I probably won't be seeing it. Well, that's not <laughs> I'll good. tell you how it is. Um, there are, you know, I, I wanted to see Cafe Society, um, but sometimes, like, it's weird that, like, his films are often... Because he's so prolific, and because not everything that he throws at the wall sticks year to year. It's not a guarantee that his film is essential. No way. It's not. And you know, magic in the moonlight was not part of the conversation of that year. Cafe. Irrational Society man or whatever it was called. Yeah. Irrational man. Is that what it, see, even me, I can't remember the name of that movie. Yeah. I think it is a rational man. Yeah. And then there's, and that was not good. And then, uh, and cafe society. I know some people really didn't like it, but it's just, some people said, well, yeah, it's pretty good. And other people said, no, it isn't. And then that was the end of the conversation. Like yeah. we then just all moved on to other films that came out last year. He's not ever. I think Midnight in Paris was the first, the last time, the most recent time that he's actually added to the film conversation. Like what's going on right now? Yeah. Nothing since then. That was 2011. So that's what seven years ago, six years ago. I do think blue. I think blue Jasmine, honestly. Well, she won uh, an Oscar, didn't she? She won the Oscar. Sally Hawkins was nominated for supporting. I think I he was up right. for screenplay. Uh, and because it's, in her, like her performance, at least for critics and stuff, was was evocative of uh, Jenna Rollins in Woman Under the Influence, and because he's tackling certain elements, um, 
like uh, corporate malfeasance and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, I think people saw that as a bit more, and there there is a bit more anger to it. I think than than other films that he's made recently, and so it seemed to have uh, he seemed more invested in that one. Um, yeah, I was remiss. I had forgotten about uh, about that movie when I was talking about like the constructs. Mm-hmm. I saw the movie three times in the theater because it was I I I couldn't quite grasp how good she was yeah. as Jasmine. Yeah. Um, that's her name in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. That's when I said it out loud, it was like, really? Her name is Jasmine. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, she is so perfectly good in that movie um, that she sort of outstrips any criticism that you might have about the rest of the movie. And there's a lot to be critical Absolutely. with the rest of the movie. A lot. Um, and even, even uh, like the scenes with Andrew Dice Clay, Who's great, I think. Yeah. Not great. His scenes are great. Are, they feel, you know, shoehorned in, but he's great in them. Louis C.K.? Uh, no, uh, Andrew Dice Clay. No, no. Um, I, was, I was just mentioning another person oh, you kind of forget about. Sorry. Um, yeah, and just, uh, but his scenes seem to relate more to the story, whereas Andrew Dice Clay, he like shows up randomly to get mad. <laughs> and so it's the kind of thing I was like, eh, I don't really buy that. But his performance is so good that He's I'm like, good. all right, I'll buy it. Yeah. Um, I'll take one. So, uh, yeah, uh, I would definitely recommend people watch Midnight in Paris. It is sure. a, it's a perfectly pleasant film. I think everyone, I think everyone would enjoy it and then move on. But I do think that it does have something interesting to say, whether he says it as well as it could have been said. Yeah. Um, cause I think he's also buying into it a little bit. Um, I think it has something interesting to say and it, and it fits into what we're talking about with, with Brooklyn. Um, and so there's a, a few quotes that I wanted to read here. Um, so the character of Paul in Midnight in Paris, played by Michael Sheen, who is a delightfully Woody Allen type character. Totally. Not the Woody type character. No. I mean. The, that would be Owen Wilson. Right. The type of person that shows up in Woody Allen films. This guy who is a know-it-all. He's a guy standing behind him online in, in Annie Hall. Absolutely. At the movie theater. But he'll say he'll say something and then he'll add in, you know, if I'm not mistaken, he'll do that. Like that's his version of humility. Sure. But he doesn't, he clearly does not think he is mistaken at all. Um, and so he's talking about nostalgia and he says, nostalgia is denial, denial of the painful present. The name for this denial is golden age thinking the erroneous notion that a different time period is better than the one one's living in. It's a flaw in the romantic imagination of those people who find it difficult to cope with the present. Now, well, I think there is a, a certain uh, cynicism and, and judgment and condemnation there. I do think that he's probably he's correct. I don't right. think we're nostalgic, nostalgic because we can't cope with the present. I think it's that idea of returning to the things that we know. Um, so uh, I wanted to read uh, well, this. I, oh, go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking. Uh, I'm thinking of that that quote in conjunction with. I was trying to think of like other movies that are about nostalgia. Sure. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized, and this is going to sound really stupid, okay, um, or grandiose, or probably not true. But those, I think, three, those three things go together pretty well. I think every movie is about nostalgia, because, or at least every movie that has a character that has a goal, because goals in characters' lives in movies are all about just by the nature of a movie. It's like going back to what was normal at the beginning of the movie. It's like something goes wrong, and then you have to fix that. So there's a nostalgic component, hmm. even if it's in the recent history, re- recent past. But but also, I mean, if you think about almost any any character who has a problem in their life, 
the reason they're characterizing it as a problem is because it's not the way it was. Sure. And this is a broader sort of definition of nostalgia or mm-hmm. wistfulness or whatever you want to call it. But I think even our motivations in our life, maybe I'm speaking Freudianly. I don't. I don't really know, but. Um, but it seems like everything that we're trying to do is to try to normalize it. And what is normal to us is what we knew first. Sure. Um, or at least what we were told was normal first or yeah. real first. And so there isn't a movie that I could think of. I was I started writing, okay, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is about nostalgia because it starts with him dying oh, and absolutely. he says the, with a word that takes him back to his childhood. And we find out what that is at the end of the movie. Spoilers. Um but then I thought that my next one was Solaris, which is like a dark yeah. version of of that. And then Cinema Paradiso, okay. And then I thought my next my next one was Taxi Driver. Why would I think Taxi Driver? Well, it's because what is his motivation for trying to rescue Jodie Foster? It's because he has some kind of idea in that rattled head of his of what innocence is. Yeah, and, and what that, chivalry is. And what chivalry is. Yeah. So like a cultural nostalgia and yeah. his own nostalgia for like maybe his own – Maybe he had a good childhood and something went horribly wrong. So even Taxi Driver, even any Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, any movie that you can think of. Well, and when you think about a Taxi Driver, uh, Martin Scorsese even employed Bernard Herrmann, like an old school true uh, composer, to maybe uh, uh, evoke some some ideas. Um, so I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with you, but what I will say is that I forget who said that it's it's not possible to make a true anti-war film. Because the depiction of war is inherently going to glorify it. In that same way, if you're going to make a film, any film that takes place in the past, I don't know if it's possible to make a truly anti-nostalgia period piece. Um, I fully agree. Even in the midst of, you know, a Holocaust movie or something like that. um, Nobody's going to feel nostalgic for that. Um, But we knew who our enemies were. We absolutely knew who the bad guys were. Yeah, N- and war was a very was a, a very clear thing of ha- this is how we fight a war. Yeah. Now, I I don't know if a war is ever going to be fought that way. Right. I feel like now it's going to be all in the midst of cities with bombs and nobody's wearing uniforms anymore, and it's just that. And it's uh, ugh, I don't I'm like scared, that Tyler. at all. It's very frightening. Uh, and so, um. So even in the midst of a Holocaust film, you know what you're going to say. And you're going to say, boy, those Nazis sure were evil. Yeah. And so there's a certain degree, even in the midst of the worst thing ever, there's comfort in it. Sure. And nostalgia is comfort, I think. Um, so while I'm not sure, I do like the idea that, that you know, normal is what we are familiar with. It is what is comfortable. And so, oh my gosh, look at all this adversity. And if the person wins, if the person has a happy ending, then what they've done is they've taken that adversity and absorbed it into their normal, right. into their comfort. And that is, that is what a happy ending looks like. True. So That's exactly I, right. So I could see that. I'm not sure if I would necessarily associate it with nostalgia, but I think it's a neat idea. Yeah. No, I, I agree with myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite. Did you ever watch Dr. Katz? No, I didn't. No. Oh my gosh. I think you'd love it. Uh, I can't look at that animation. It, it, I don't Look, know I recognize that you're a big fan of Wes Anderson, but not everything is going to have this high shine on it. No, but here, here's the thing. I like uh, home movies. Really? And it's got the same... It's the same squiggle vision thing. But it's different. Maybe because it's a different 
different, maybe because it's about a little kid dealing with adult things. Maybe. And he can't quite handle it. I, I relate to that. But Dr. Katz, I never did. I do think Dr. Katz honestly could be, ju- could just as easily be a radio show. You could just listen to sure. it. Sure. It's fine. But, uh, but you know, the, the, the voice of Dr. Katz, Jonathan Katz, like has just this very, you know, this very, uh, quiet voice. And, and I, and him saying stuff, uh, him saying certain things is actually a, a source of comedy. And so there's a, there's a part where he's having a, a debate with uh, Dennis Leary and he puts something out there. And then Dennis Leary says like, no, I think it's more like this. And then Dr. Cat says, and he goes, mm, I think I might be more inclined to agree with what I said. <laughs> and I feel like that's, that's everybody. If they could say it out loud, yeah. they would say that. But it's just, it's that's the internet making it seem like it's uh, like he's come to a, he's really thought it out and come to a conclusion. And uh, yeah, I stick by what I'm saying. If the, if the whole internet could be translated into an old con, uh, genteel British man, that that's what it would be. I believe I would agree with myself. Yes, absolutely. Uh, basically, uh, Paul from Midnight in Paris. There you go. Perfect. Um, so there's a. So I, I will read. I only have one verse here from Ecclesiastes, but I like it a lot. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book. It is a book that can seem depressing if you don't. But it is. It is always saying like, no, no, no. You need to put your hope in the right things. If you don't, then this is a very depressing book Yeah, because, you know, I've done all of these things and none of them fulfilled me the way, uh, the way God does. And so, um, but, uh, so this is Ecclesiastes 7.10. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Just a very simple, just a very simple sentiment. Um, but, uh, but I do like it, um, because Ecclesiastes is all about stuff that is meaningless mm-hmm. and chasing after the wind. All is vanity. All is vanity. It's just, it, it really is a little bit condemning of these things that we cling to for comfort to go back to that word. Um, and it's, and so what I do think is interesting to actually embrace the nature of midnight in Paris, even in, even in what uh, I, as a kid would call Bible times, <laughs> there were still people saying, why were the old ba- old days better than these? Hmm. You know, um, and that fascinates me because it's if if people were saying that then, then I think it's a fair assumption that people have always said it. Do you find the past that, was better? Do you think that you would you classify yourself as a nostalgic person? Um, yes. Uh, I like to be reminded of, of things, especially from a pop culture standpoint, I like to be reminded of things that played a big role right. in who I am now as a, as a critic, as a movie watcher, whatever it is. Um, I don't think I necessarily romanticize it um, because for the same reason that I, that I mentioned that thing about my, my senior year of high school is that, yeah, I had a lot then. I didn't have to worry about, you know, paying property taxes or anything like that. Um, it was a simpler, it it was genuinely a simpler time, but such as the nature of when other people are making your decisions for you. Yeah. Um, adulthood is always going to be more complicated and you're going to make some wrong decisions and you're going to regret things. Um, so it's easy to look back at that time and say, Oh, that sounds great. But there are a lot of, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, invo- I'll, uh, invoke Seinfeld again. If I, if I want to eat a cookie, I'll eat a cookie. <laughs> you know, there's something to be said, said for that level of freedom, but then it's also the, the school that I'm going to now. And just the, 
everywhere I am now is because I'll say putting God's sovereignty aside for a moment and just assume that I am, that I do believe that, that God, uh, opens doors and then I walk through them and, and puts things in my path. So I don't mean to say like, I'm, I got where I got, you know, I've earned everything I've got as Richard Nixon would say. Um, but everything in my life is, you know, whether it be being married or living in Los Angeles or going to UCLA or doing this podcast, it's because I, I had the freedom to do that as an adult. And I don't think I would have had that level of freedom when I was younger. And so, uh, so I have a hard time fully romanticizing the past because I try to be aware of what, of the good things in the present. Um, even honestly, even, uh, so far as I wish I could go back to when my dad was alive. Sure. But here's the thing, as I've said on the show, as strange as it may sound like my dad being gone left a, left a, a pretty big hole in my life and it can never be completely filled because that, you know, a father's a very specific role in your life. But Jen plays such a huge role in my life that why would I want to sacrifice that to go back to this time when, and of course I loved my father. I miss him tremendously, but the nature of life is that you move away from your parents towards this person that you love and then you go forward. And so to go back, you know, I've never loved anybody as much as I love Jen and it's such a different type of love. Um, so it's a complicated feeling, um, because I think some of us might feel like we're doing a disservice to the past if we, if we say that we prefer the present. Um, but like Every, suddenly you don't love all the people that you love that you knew back then or right, something, you know, but what else? So here's a line from uh, midnight in Paris. Uh, Owen Wilson says, that's what the present is. It's a little unsatisfying because life's a little unsatisfying. It's so Woody Allen. Yeah. <laughs> so perfectly. But it's, but that's mm. the thing is my life wasn't perfect when my dad was around. My life is not perfect now that I'm married. My life wasn't perfect when I was in high school. Yeah. Every, it's always a little bit unsatisfying. And if you let that dictate your attitude towards the past, present and future, then you're going to set yourself up for not merely a little unsatisfying, but incredibly unsatisfying because then you're the one deciding what you're satisfied with. Um, so anyway, uh, or rather you're, you're dictating your own dissatisfaction. Uh, I do want to uh, end with this quote from Ailish in Brooklyn. You'll feel you'll feel so homesick that you'll want to die, and there's nothing you can do about it apart from endure it. But you will, and it won't kill you. And one day the sun will come out. You might not even notice straight away it'll be that faint. And then you'll catch yourself thinking about something or someone who has no connection with the past, someone who's truly yours, and you'll realize that this is where your life is. Man, I love that, that line. It's so wonderful. And it, and it does fit into something that I've said on the, on the show before that, uh, having moved around a lot, I, I always had a hard time thinking of what home means, you know, home didn't mean Missouri. It doesn't mean Chicago. It doesn't mean Denver. It certainly doesn't mean Taft. Um, and just feeling like I was without a home. It's like, no, no, no. Home is here. Home is with my wife. We might be living in an apartment. We might be living in a house. We might be living in another city, but home is where she is. Right. And I could spend all my time, you know, so it's that, that idea of some people go home for the holidays. I stay home for the holidays. Hmm. Um, so, and that's, and, and 
I would say this idea that, you know, you catch yourself thinking about something or someone who has no connection with the past. That's if you allow yourself to do so and not just cling to the cling to the past so much that you can't even see the person or thing that's in your present that is a huge blessing. Um, so, uh, but nostalgia is a big thing on the internet. So, uh, I felt like this episode would be good, uh, for, for listeners. Maybe, uh, maybe you at home feel, uh, tend to feel nostalgic and there's nothing wrong with that. But if that becomes like your overriding feeling, uh, then that can be a, a problem. Would you, would you consider yourself a nostalgic person? That's not a vibe I get from you. No, I, I feel like that, um, I feel like I, I, I definitely am nostalgic. I know that I'm nostalgic when I start looking at old pictures. Mm. And I, I just sit there and I keep going through pictures and I start thinking about old times. And I do that thing where I, I do sentimentalize it and I idealize it. And I mm. think, and I forget that li- my actual childhood was horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I go, oh, that was great. I love that house. I love that. You yeah. know, oh, we built a snowman out in the, you know, all that kind of stuff is like, oh, yeah, that was so great. But really, it wasn't. Um, so I, I think I have a circumspect enough. Right. Uh, perspective, can you say that? Um, sure. That I, I I don't know that I'm. It's funny though. I I do feel like in certain in certain times I feel sentimental and nostalgic. But for the most part, I think you are absolutely right. I'm not a a nostalgic type person. That said, I have boxes of stuff in my closet that's like old school drawings. Yeah. And all that stuff is like still with me. So it's. Yeah. My mom has been sending me uh, boxes of my old things because she just moved from Missouri to Texas. Please take and- this. What was that? Yeah, essentially. And so I'm looking through it. And in some cases, like, I'm deeply ashamed of it. Mm -hmm. Like, this story wasn't good. It's like, yeah, you were six. It's fine. Don't Um, judge yourself now based on your your writings (laughs) at six. Yeah, that's... uh, that's when uh, you, as John Piper say, that you neglect your life by excessive living in the past. When it's just like, I, I already have enough stuff I regret. I can't be regretting stories yeah. I wrote when I was six. But here's the problem. I mean, I, I, to, to say whether or not I'm uh, a nostalgic person, I also adore old movies more than I like new movies. Hmm. Or I like I like a lot about older cultures, film film cultures and art, art and that kind of thing that, you know, than I do now, this stuff now. And I think it's because I am debilitated like most humans. And it's impossible to see clearly the good stuff that's now because of all of the stuff that's swirling around those good things. Right. Every movie that is released now is a film you're aware of. You can't be aware of something that was released, like every movie that was released in 1964. You know the maybe, I'm going to be generous and say 20 movies that have been remembered because they're so good or so terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, The mediocre films just pass away. Yep. and so when people look, you know, uh, last year I didn't think it was a particularly great year, but people in 20, 30 years might look back on 2016 and say, oh my gosh, look at these, these five movies that are absolute masterpieces. Yep. You know, um, I do, th- I do think that I'm, I'm, I have enough presence of mind to be able to declare like this like 2007 is a wonderful movie year 99 as i've said before i think is the best movie year um and yes maybe it's maybe there's a recency bias on my own part but like we just look at the number of directors both old and And new films that are putting out great movies so yeah i think it's important to as you mentioned let's talk about it from a movie standpoint if you go see a movie that came out 
it came out this year. You go and see it in the theater. Let's say it's uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which I liked way more than I thought I was going to, given the first one. Um, but uh, let's not do that. Let's say, let's say Brooklyn, you know. You can just be okay with it being a great movie that came out right now and be like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy I saw that movie. And it didn't come out 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It came out in this, in, in our case, two years ago. It is a film, it is a, uh, a recent film that came out in our lifetimes and isn't that wonderful. They're still making fil- great <laughs> films in our lifetime. Um, so that said, uh, so in our, in our, class we watched uh the best years of our lives Mm, great wonderful film um and and i've said this uh elsewhere uh it was the highest grossing movie of that year and for a while it was the second highest grossing movie of all time behind gone with the wind wow i didn't know that yeah and then you know other movies came along and, and usurped that obviously but um but think about the number one movies now it's hard. Yes. It's hard not to be nostalgic when you realize that this three-hour drama about war veterans was the number one movie a year after the war, when yeah. people probably don't want to think about that. Sure. Um, and now it's you know Transformers movies oh, and, and such. You know, so, it hurts. But then and but nostalgia is also very successful at the box office. You know, Star Wars movies are doing very well. Sure. And. Uh, they are trying to emulate uh, this these these old ways of making it. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, I don't think nostalgia is a bad thing. I don't think sentimentality is a bad thing. But if that is what is dictating your life and you can't appreciate, to put it in spiritual terms, you can't appreciate where God has brought you now, um, even if it's not the most pleasant p- uh, place. You know, it's a place that you will have to endure. And then once you get past it, you may wind up like you're talking about with your childhood, looking back on this rough time now and saying like, you know what? It wasn't so bad, even if it objectively was, Sure. Um, but it'll give you an appreciation for where God brings you next. So uh, wherever you go, there you are. That's what I say. <laughs> well said. Thank you. I don't remember who said that. You said it. That's right. We're living in the now. You said it. <laughs> oh man, can you imagine that if you have <laughs> you have such disdain for the past that you don't you act as though nothing existed before this exact moment. Prime the pump? I think what? That's something that Trump said this week. He said he just came up with that phrase regarding the uh, in the uh, economy. Sorry to end on that note. It's bothersome on a lot of on a lot of levels. Number one, prime the pump is uh, Keynesian economics, which exactly. I do not uh, agree with. Once again, showing that he is not actually a conservative, but everybody was fooled. <laughs> oh, also, he didn't come up with that term. Anyway, uh, okay, we're gonna move on. You know what? I do feel I feel a little bit nostalgic for. Uh-oh. Any time before now, I would <laughs> oh, say. Um, I'm so sorry I took us there. That should not be the last note of this now episode. I'm bummed out. I did. But it. that's all right. We'll, uh, we'll I'm not cheer- coming back, am I? Uh, no. Uh, we'll cheer back up with. Then uh, I'm going to savor this the- moment. Oh, okay. Yes. All right. Hang on. Let's just. Savoring, savoring, savoring. All right. <sighs> Good. Um, yeah, next week we will be uh, back with uh, a discussion of the end of the tour, and that'll cheer us right up. Mm. Uh, uh, <laughs> 
but that's all right. Nobody's seen it. So why would you even bother listening to that episode? But do seek it out. Actually, it's quite good. The companion film will be Amadeus. So Ooh. there you go. All right. Uh, so you can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You're always welcome to leave a, a comment in this post. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at more lessons and then, uh, please do uh, check out my book worth watching. It is $15. If you live in the United States and Canada, I am working on other regions. So in the meantime, thank you for listening, Robert. Thank you for being here. You got it. And we'll get you next time. Bye. <laughs>